You're listening to a resource from the Field Church in Mandeville, Louisiana. It is our joy to glorify God by treasuring Jesus in the preaching of His Word. We pray this resource will be a tool used to aid in your relationship with Christ in addition to your local church. Blood of Jesus, nothing but the blood. Nothing but the blood of Jesus, nothing but the blood. Nothing but the blood of Jesus, nothing but the blood. Nothing but the blood of Jesus, nothing but the blood. Amen. Good morning, everybody. You guys awake? Yeah? Okay. Would you please turn in your Bible to Luke chapter 17, verses 20 through 37. I'm so glad that you're here this morning, and we will look at God's Word together. Um, it was amazing to see our kids uh, do that in both services, and, and um, to hear them sing uh, deep, rich uh, uh, songs that express such meaningful truth. And, um, and uh, we were just so glad to do that. And uh, the first service, we just had so many family members here and, and, and so many people here in support of our kids. And, and I'm thankful to spend this time now with you. Um, but as we look now to the Word of God, uh, again, I hope you, you're there in your Bible, Luke chapter 17, verses 20 through 37. And if you don't have a Bible, I want to just encourage you to grab one in the seat pocket in front of you or to grab one in the back of the room. Um, you're going to need a, a Bible for the next uh, little bit as we look to God's Word um, together. I want you to be able to look at the text and understand the text for yourself, to see the meaning in the text, to understand uh, what uh, God is uh, speaking through His Word, um, that you would see it for yourself, understand it, and be changed by it. Um, and this is the text in, in Luke chapter 17 that the Lord in his providence has given us to focus on this morning. Uh, as we make our way verse by verse through the book of Luke, uh, God has us here uh, this morning. Now, before we engage in the exposition of this particular text, I want to recite corporately, corporately one more time, really, for the month, our uh, memory verse, this month's corporate memory verse, okay? So it's on the screen. I want to just say it out loud together for one more time before we uh, get into uh, our passage in Luke. So can you say it with me? Sorry, we only have one screen here, right? Um, you guys got to look through these Christmas trees and, and try to see it. Um, so hopefully you know by memory, um, so you don't even have to look. But let's say it out loud together. Ready? I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies. Okay, let's do it one more time and act like you just love this verse, okay? That'd be a good thing. You ready? Let's do it again. There you go. Okay, what an instructional verse. And I encourage you, I want to encourage you just today simply to do three things, okay, coming out of this. And uh, as we close out the month and therefore we close out our time with this verse, I want to encourage you to do three things. The first thing I want you to do is I encourage you to continue to meditate on this verse for the remainder of the month. Okay, so write it somewhere, uh, look at it in your Bible every morning. Recite it to yourself while you're at work. Uh, don't let this thing go before the month is over. Okay, wrestle with it. 
Secondly, what I encourage you to do is to go back to last week's message. And I really want to encourage you to do this. I, I mean it. Go to uh, the podcasts uh, that you'll find on, you know, wherever, uh, iTunes or Spotify. Listen to last week's message and specifically the first 30 minutes of the message or so where we just spent an extended period of time on this verse. Um, and take the time to listen to it. We spent time clearly and accurately explaining and applying this verse in light of the surrounding context and, and the implications that it has on our lives. And I really, really want our church to, to understand what we talked about in this verse last week. We need to get this. So would you please go back and listen just for at least the first 30 minutes. And if you have an hour, listen to the whole thing. Um, but we need to get the truths that are in this verse. And I made sure last week I took advantage of the opportunity to kind of put all the pieces together rather than splitting up, uh, splitting up all the particulars in uh, you know, consecutive weeks. I, I just put it all together in one week last week, and I want you to get that. I want you to get it. Um, so go back and listen. Thirdly, what I want to encourage you to do is to read the book of Romans. And again, if you'll remember last week, everything that we said about this verse is, flows from what Romans 1 through 11 says, right? Uh, th read the book of Romans and read it slowly, read it meditatively, um, and keep in mind when you get to this verse that this verse works as a hinge. It's a key transitional verse in the book of Romans. And so everything in chapters 1 through 11 leads up to this then exhortation, which then everything in chapters 12 through 16 flows from this exhortation. And so I want you to go ahead and read it and uh, read the whole book and, and see it again. Again, God's great glory and wisdom and salvation. And, and now that we've understood this salvation, how should we live? Holy. We should be made mature in Christ. And then what flows from maturity is very practical. So we see how the book of Romans flows from explanation to application. And so I encourage you to do these three things uh, this week. And uh, I know that God is going to change you and change us collectively as we do them. So let's move now to, to Luke and read verses 17, uh, chapter 17, verses 20 through 37. Okay, and we got business to take care of, so y'all better be ready. Okay, here we go. Verses 20 through 37, chapter 17. Being asked by the Pharisees, when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. Nor will they say, look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. And he said to the disciples, the days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, look there or look here. Do not go out and follow them. For as lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. 
But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, let the one who is on the housetop with goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life will keep it. I tell you, in that night, there will be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding together. One will be taken and the other left. And they said to him, where, Lord? He said to them, where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. What a text, huh? Now, what we're seeing here, let's, let's do this. Jesus is giving clarity about the kingdom. Jesus is giving clarity about the kingdom. This is the particular doctrine that's being made known here, which is why, again, I've entitled this two-part message, Clarity About the Kingdom, because that's exactly what's happening here. Jesus is providing clarity about the kingdom. That's the particular doctrine or teaching being made known. He's correcting the wrong expectations of the kingdom of God, and he's teaching the right expectations of the kingdom of God. And in verses 20 through 21, Jesus clarifies the expectations of the present kingdom, which is what we saw last week. So he clarified the expectations of the present kingdom. You saw the Pharisees ask, where's the kingdom? Right? And he clarifies the expectations. So what we saw last week is the Pharisees, listen now, disdainfully asked Jesus when the kingdom would come. They're saying this. They had seen signs of messianic fulfillment. This isn't a big deal to you, but listen, this is a huge deal in light of the context of Scripture. Everything in the Old Testament was pointing to the coming of the Messiah. The whole, the whole Bible revolves around the fulfillment of the messianic prophecies. And that's what we're celebrating here at Christmas. And that's what we celebrate here at Advent. Is they, were, they heard, they anticipated, they waited, they longed for, and then he came. Right? I mean, this is a major theme in the scriptures. And so they had, they had waited. They had looked for signs of messianic fulfillment, prophecy fulfillment of the Old Testament. And yet what the Pharisees expected was a physical kingdom an immediate kingdom. When the Messiah would come, he would immediately establish a kingdom. 
a physical kingdom, a political kingdom, a personal kingdom, a prosperous kingdom, and a physical kingdom. They were so short-sighted that they believed the Messiah's kingdom would be one where it just freed them from Roman rule, and that they would be the dominant nation on the earth. That was their hope. That's pretty short-sighted, huh? That's what they wanted. They expected personal, prosperous, physical, political blessings. And so when Jesus came, he claimed to be the Christ, God's Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah, the fulfillment, again, of all the Old Testament prophecies, the coming king. He showed signs of that, being that, fulfilling what the Old Testament had said about the coming Messiah. The Jews were talking, is this him? Is he the one? They were asking questions. And so although Jesus claimed to be this, although the Jewish people were talking and wondering, the Pharisees essentially said, well, okay, if you're the one, where's your kingdom? Where's your kingdom? (laughs) You got no rule over over Rome. You're not in charge right now. You're subject just like the rest of us. Where's your kingdom? And so Luke 11 clarifies, or Luke 19 just makes this clear. It says, they suppose that the kingdom of God was to appear, what? Immediately, immediately. That was their expectation. And so here's what happens. Listen, in verses 20 through 21, Jesus answers. That's what we saw last week. And he speaks about what his kingdom is not. And then he speaks about what his kingdom is. His kingdom is not something that can be observed. The one he came to bring, the one he was born to bring, the one he was bringing in this, when he came to earth, it wasn't something that could be observed. It wasn't something that you could say, look, here it is, or there, there it is. He's not coming to bring this physical, prosperous, personal political kingdom. The present kingdom that he came to bring is not a physical kingdom. It's a spiritual kingdom where people come under God's reign and God's rule through repentance and faith, regeneration by the Holy Spirit. In other words, salvation. What Jesus came to bring in his first coming, which carries until now the spiritual kingdom, the way we enter into God's kingdom is through salvation in Jesus Christ. Where there's a kingdom, there's a king. It's where Jesus reigns and rules. And you who are lost in sin, you turn from your sin, from being the Lord of your life. And you come back to the design that you were created for to be under the reign and rule of God. You realize your sinful condition, that you are guilty before a holy God. You turn from your sin. You agree with God about your sin. You repent of your sin and you trust in and believe in Christ. Believe in his deity and then trust in the merit of his atoning work on the cross for your salvation. And then you come under his reign and rule and you're in his kingdom. You have peace with the king again. You're not his enemy or his adversary. You are, you are in his kingdom. 
And this is the present kingdom that he came to bring. And this is an internal work, he's saying. This is through faith. This is through belief. This is how it happens. He came to bring this spiritual kingdom. And the Pharisees do not get it. They're just looking for a physical kingdom. That's what they think they need the most, by the way. And what about you? You believe what you need most is some physical, personal, immediate, prosperous blessing from God? Is that what you've sought Jesus for? Is that what you're seeking him for? Because I'll tell you, you, you need something far more than him to change your immediate life. You need him to give you eternal life. You need to be born again. Salvation is far superior to any kind of physical change that Jesus can bring in your life immediately. You need to realize your condition before God, your guilt before God, and be, be saved. Matthew 13 says this, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure in a field, hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. That's a spiritual reality. That's a picture of salvation. And this was not what the Pharisees wanted. So Jesus came to bring this in his first coming, the present kingdom. And the Pharisees, they didn't believe they needed this. Do you know that? They couldn't grasp that Jesus was talking about salvation, not only because they were blind to their sin, but because they thought that they were descendants of Abraham. They were part of Israel. They didn't need salvation before God. The Gentiles did, right? This is all the reality stuffed into this text. I'm not making this up. I'm not just saying, hmm, what would I like to say to these people? This is, this is the backdrop of this text. And so the Pharisees, they didn't believe they needed it. They were keepers of the law, descendants of Abraham. They were part of Israel. No awareness of their sinful condition. No awareness of their need for salvation. No humility to repent and believe. No desire to be clean on the inside. Only a desire to be clean on the outside. Only a desire for immediate earthly blessing. Luke 18 tells us, they trusted in themselves that they were righteous. That's what, that's what it was. So they didn't need any salvation spiritually. They just needed the Messiah to come and vindicate them from their enemies. And, and so they will be like the one in the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, who we read a, a few weeks ago, that prospered on earth, recognized on earth, and yet when they get to eternity, they'll say, I didn't expect this. And they'll face damnation. And they won't even believe if Jesus raises from the dead. Salvation was inferior to a desire for earthly blessing. And, and listen, that's not so different from people today, is it? And, and the, listen, their assessment of whether the kingdom had come to their life or not was whether or not they were experiencing some kind of physical blessing. And that's not so different from people today, is it? And listen now, their interpretation of the scriptures was taking all these spiritual realities that come through salvation and interpreting them purely physically. And that's not so different from people today. And so salvation wasn't what they wanted. Let me show you the progression of this, and then we're going to move into our verses. Think about this. 
Look at, look at verse 10 of chapter 17. It, it, that section ends with this. So also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what is our duty. Listen now, you know what Jesus is saying there? The Jews, they have no claim on God. They think they have claim on God. Like he owes them a, a, a salvation or that he owes them eternity. He owes them the kingdom. He owes them the rule because they're descendants of Abraham. They're righteous. They're keepers of the law. They have no claim on God. There's no claim that they have upon God. And so, but you know what we see in the next section, verses 11 through 19? Just think about this progression for a second. Stay with me. You got to think deeply about the scriptures. Think about this progression. And the next section, after saying, you have no claim on the Lord, he says, but look what I've provided. He provides this common grace and this healing. And then he provides this salvific grace to the Gentile. But the Jews in this, in this section, they don't want the salvific grace. They have no claim on God. They need salvation, right? And God has provided endless common grace to Israel. And what they need is a salvific grace. And the, the, the Gentile here is the only one who realizes it. All the Jews miss the point. And then they get to our section and Jesus is saying the kingdom is not some physical thing. You need something far more than something physical. And they don't want that. They want something Immediate, physical. They don't want the spiritual blessing. And so we understand that this is a, just, a, a, just a grave misconception by the Pharisees. They're looking for the wrong thing. And Jesus is referring to their salvation. You don't need to be looking for it. Listen, you don't need to be looking for a physical kingdom, Pharisees. You need something far more than that. Now, let me tell you this. The Jews were also confused. This is all packed in here. The Jews were also confused. You want to know why the, the rest of the, outside of the Pharisees, even though all the rest of the Jews were confused about where's the kingdom? Messiah, right? Where, where, how's this all happening? They were all confused. Why? Because the Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah, we should do a study on this sometime, by the way, uh, to show all the Old Testament prophecies about the coming Messiah and how they're fil fulfilled in the New Testament and where they're fulfilled. It's not something that you can't read and figure out and understand. It's very, very straightforward. We, we're in the New Testament. We're in the New Covenant. You can, you can have real clarity about all this, right? Now, the people who didn't have the New Testament, they, they were wondering. They were, they, they were unclear. So even some of them were probably wondering about this in a genuine way. 1 Peter 1 tells us that concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be given, they were searching, searching and they were inquiring carefully. They, they were asking, what kind of person would this be? What, you know, when was this going to happen? And so they were wondering about the Messiah, the coming. They didn't know who, they didn't know when, and they also couldn't figure out how all this was going to happen. So the, the Pharisees are asking with wrong expectations because they're blind to their own sin. The Jews are genuinely confused. Most of them also blind to their own sin and self-righteous. But think about this. We have places like Micah 6, Hosea 11, Jeremiah 22, Daniel 34, Isaiah 8, Isaiah 28, Psalm 118, Isaiah 53, Genesis 49, Daniel 7, Psalm 2, Genesis 22, Isaiah 7. I mean, I could just go on. All of this pointing to the Messiah and they couldn't figure out how and 
and in what way all this was going to be fulfilled. Think about this. The facts that this is what the Old Testament said. He was going to be a suffering servant, and yet he was going to be a king of glory. How are you going to put those two together? He was going to be worshipped by the saints, but he was going to be despised and rejected. How are you going to put those two together? He was going to be suffering and sorrowful and lowly, yet he was going to be victorious. How do we put this together? He was going to be the son of man, and yet he was going to be the son of God. How are you going to put that together? He would be the seed of Abraham, and he would also be the seed of a woman. He, he was going to be the seed of a woman, and yet he was going to be born of a woman who had no seed, a virgin. How are you going to put that together? He was going to have no father, and yet God was going to be his father. He was going to come out of Bethlehem, but he was going to come out of Egypt. I mean, all of this. And yet in the wisdom of God, all of this would be fulfilled in Christ's life, birth, his birth, his life, his death, and his resurrection. And uh, even in the New Testament, they were confused. Remember John in Matthew chapter 11? He asked this from jail, John the Baptist. Are you the one? Or should we expect another one? Remember that? In Luke 24, we see this later on in his ministry. Jesus said, oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and then enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. At some point in his ministry, Jesus said, okay, let me show you. He showed him in all the scriptures how it all pointed back to himself. And in all of this, we just see this. Listen, Jesus is indeed God's Christ. He did fulfill every messianic prophecy. He did come to bring his kingdom, to provide access to his, in his first coming to a spiritual kingdom. He came to provide salvation through the forgiveness of sins, imputed righteousness, reconciliation with God, and submission to his word. And all of this, Jesus is making clear. I am the Christ. I have come, and my kingdom is a salvation through who I am and what I've done for sinners. And he's making that very, very clear. And I ask, I wonder about you. Do you you understand? Do do you understand that God fulfilled his promise in sending a savior? And that the way you enter into God's kingdom is through salvation in Jesus Christ. If not, you are outside of the kingdom. And you are at enmity with the king. And he sends heralders out. That's what preaching is. The the word in the the New Testament is a herolder. A herolder who comes and announces the kingdom. Hear ye, hear ye, hear ye. The king offers peace. If you will repent of your sins, bow your knee to the Lord Jesus Christ, you can be reconciled with the king and enter into his kingdom. And live under his reign, his rule, his authority, his protection, his goodness, his care. The strongest king in all the universe. That's how you enter in. Jesus is making all this clear for the Pharisees and for the rest of the Jews. And so as we move into verses 22 through 37, listen now. The Pharisees are not the only ones there, but the disciples are there too. And so now he provides clarity about the future kingdom, part two. And um, let me just tell you, this is pretty, pretty intense because the Jews didn't understand that the Messiah was going to come twice. You know that? 
In fact, they interpret all the prophecies about his second coming as also fulfilled in his first coming. And so he would return and this will be a physical kingdom and it would be right for his disciples to look for it and to anticipate it and to expect it and to expect it to be visible and physical and immediate. And all the spiritual realities will become a physical reality. And yet the only ones who will have access to it will be the ones who have already entered into his first kingdom through salvation. And so he graciously provides clarity here. You notice the parallels here. And it's, it's just wonderful. If you, look, if you look closely at the word of God, the parallels here. He says here, look, just look at verse 20. The kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is or there. Now, verse 22, look at it. He said to his disciples, the days are coming when you disciples, true disciples, will desire to see one of the days. I'm correcting the Pharisees that they shouldn't be looking for a physical kingdom. But after your salvation, it is right that you will look for and desire an observable kingdom. And you will not see it. They're not seeing it because they have the wrong expectations. First needs to come salvation. You will not see it because you're going to have to wait for it. But you will look for it and it will come. I mean, he's just making clear. There will be a physical kingdom after the spiritual. And you will wait for it and it will come. And then he says, let me tell you about this kingdom. And that's what we see for the rest of the passage. So there's six features of the future kingdom that we're going to make clear. This is very straightforward. It's very clear. This is just not difficult to understand. We believe in the perspicuity of scripture, meaning it's clear. You can look at it and read it and understand it. It's very simple. Here's the six points. I'm just previewing them for you, and then we're just going to get right into it. We're going to see six features of the future kingdom. Number one, there's a waiting for the future kingdom. Number two, There's a watching for the future kingdom, of the future kingdom, sorry. You're going to wait for it. You're going to watch it. Number three, he tells us about when this future kingdom will come, the, the when of the future kingdom. Number four, he tells of the lack of warning of the future kingdom. Number five, he tells the disciples the way to respond to the future kingdom. And then number six, he makes clear the, the wrath uh, of the future kingdom. And very straightforward. He's giving them clarity about the kingdom. How gracious of Jesus. He made clear that the first kingdom, the interpretation of the Old Testament, it's a spiritual reality, salvation through Jesus Christ. And he's making clear the second kingdom will be physical, will be immediate, will be observable. And here's the features of that kingdom. Pretty easy. Waiting, watching, when, lack of warning, way to respond, and wrath. Okay? So, to make these clear, let's take them one at a time. Number one, the waiting uh, for the future kingdom. Verse 22. Being asked by the Pharisees, I'm sorry, verse 22. And he said to the disciples, the days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man. To see. It's if you're going to emphasize any words here. You would emphasize will and see. He said to the disciples, the days are coming when you will, right? Desire to see, to see. 
because he's contrasting this to the Pharisees. They're desiring to see it, but they're desiring something entirely different than what he's telling them. You will see the physical kingdom after you are born again, and it will come, and you're gonna desire it, but I'm not gonna correct that because it will come, but I'm gonna clarify what it will look like. Of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. You will not see it, just as they're not seeing it, but differently, right? You're not gonna see it because you'll be waiting for it, not because you have wrong expectations. Now, this is all very straightforward. It doesn't take a lot to figure it out, okay? Following speaking to the Pharisees, Jesus informs the disciples about when the Son of Man is going to be revealed. Look at verse 30. That's a key word. Verse 30, look, it will be on that day when the Son of Man is what? What? Revealed, that's what he's talking about. So, okay, you got clues here. He's talking about a second coming. He was, he's gone and then he's revealed. He's coming again, he's gonna be revealed. You're gonna see it. It's clear. He's talking to the, to the disciples about his second coming. And it's clear also because if you look at verse 22, it calls it his day. I'm sorry, verse 24. He calls it his day. And we know the day of the Lord is also referring to his second coming from the rest of the New Testament. You see in verse 24, Five, he's talking about his crucifixion needing to happen first. And then you're talking about verse 26. He says, the days of the Son of Man, that's going to happen after that. The day that he's talking about is clearly his second coming. It's going to happen after the crucifixion. And it's going to be a visible thing. So here we see that the first characteristic of his coming is waiting. He said to his disciples, his true disciples, who, for whom it will be right to expect a physical kingdom. He says the days, look at this, in verse 22, the days are coming. You know what that means? It's future-oriented. It's future-oriented. That might be obvious, but that's clear. It's future-oriented. When he says you will desire the days of the Son of Man, like the Pharisees desire to see it, you will too, though you're looking with different expectations. They were looking for an earthly kingdom. You're going to be looking for a heavenly kingdom. They were looking for it now. You're going to be looking for it then. They were looking for it without salvation first. You're going to be looking for his second coming. They were looking for his first coming. You're going to be looking for his return. They were looking for earthly reward. You're going to be looking for a different reason. You know why these disciples, all disciples, desire for his return and look for his return? Because of the promise of his return. That's why true disciples should look for his return and expect it. Because he teaches in the New Testament through the Holy Spirit's divine authorship of the scriptures that he's going to return. That's why disciples should expect his return. Because of the guarantee of his return and his word. Because the plan of the church demands his return. That's why true disciples expect his return. Because the corruption of the world demands his return. That's why true disciples should expect his return. Because the exaltation and vindication of Jesus and the glory of God demands his return. That's why true disciples should expect his return. Because the final destruction of Satan and the fallen world demands his return. That's why true disciples should expect his return. And because the hope of the church demands his return. The Pharisees want to know when his kingdom's coming for their own self-centered, self-exalting desires. The disciples are going to want, true disciples are going to want because they desire to see his second coming for his vindication, his glory, and our ultimate glorification. 
Verse 22, it says, you will not see it, but not because of the wrong expectations, but because you gotta wait for it. All true Christians, listen now, let me tell you this. Test yourselves now. Here's a litmus test. All true Christians who have knowledge of the scriptures desire his return. All mature Christians who have knowledge of the scriptures desire his return. They want to see him no longer rejected, but returning in glory. 1 Thessalonians 1 says, to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. True disciples, as Titus 2 says, are waiting for our blessed, Titus 2, our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. They are ones who, as 2 Timothy 4 says, have loved his appearing. It's the desire of all those who are mature in Christ. They long for the glory of Christ. They see, desire to see his glory, as John 17, 24 says. But you want to know what? Listen now. The world will mock this expectation. And they will mock this desire. They're thinking that it won't happen because of the period of waiting. And they're going to use it as an excuse to live their own sinful desire, for their own sinful desires. Second Peter says this, knowing that first of all, the scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They'll say this, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things are just continuing as they were from the beginning of the creation. But true disciples know of this reality that he's coming back. They, they desire his coming. And in the meantime, they're focused on sanctification and maturity and holiness. 1 John 3 says this, see what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears... We shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. You know what you should be doing while you're waiting for Christ to return? Making yourself pure. Being made holy by the washing of the what? Of the what? The word. That's what saved people do until Jesus comes back. They're sanctified. Verse 22, go back to your text. Jesus is addressing those who are in the kingdom about his return, and he says they're going to desire. Now, let me point out a couple more things here. He uses the phrase, and this is the longest point because it sets up the foundation for the rest. He uses the phrase, son of man. And this is a messianic title. Jesus is saying here, I'm the Christ. I'm the Messiah. And he's using a title here that is connected to his coming. It's found in Daniel 17, 13 through 14. He knows what he's doing here. It's connected to the idea of his coming, and it's a messianic title. Two of the main things he's making clear here. I'm the Messiah. I'm coming. 
Daniel 7 says this. Here's where he's, what Jesus is referring to. I saw in the night visions, this is a prophecy from Daniel. And behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like what? Like what? A son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and he was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a what? A kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his what? Kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. My kingdom is coming. I'm the Messiah. And it will be physical. It will be permanent. Right? He, is, he knows what he's doing here. And by the way, this is the most relevant title he can use of himself since the topic is about his messiahship and about his coming kingdom. And by the way, this is Christ's favorite designation of himself. Did you know that? He uses this, uses this 84 times in the gospels. Son of man, son of man. This is what he calls himself. And so here's what Jesus is making clear. True disciples are gonna read desire this return. Why wouldn't you? <laughs> I want to be with your king. You know, the word desire here that he uses in verse 22 is a long for. It's the verb in the Greek, a form of the verb in the Greek, epithemeo, which means a driving passion for something. True, mature disciples live with a driving passion for Christ to return. He uses the term day in the singular. It just refers to the general, big picture, not so much the specific. He uses the singular word days in verse 26 as he gets into more of the specifics. And the time will come when he will return. All true believers long for it. Like Revelation 6, the martyrs longed for it. Look at, you know what they said? They said, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? In Romans 8, they long for Christ to reveal who his true disciples are and who the false disciples are. It says in Romans 8, creation longs with eager longing for the revealing of what? Sons of God. When he comes back, he will make clear who his true disciples are and who not. And so James says this, as we're waiting for him, he says this, look, be patient therefore, brothers, until what? Until what? The coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains? You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the what? The coming of the Lord is at hand. So Jesus is making clear, after providing access into his spiritual kingdom, true believers will long for, wait for, should expect his return and this is right. Now, let me ask you this question. Does this describe you? Does this describe you? Are you someone who longs, has a driving passion for, lives in light of the imminent return of Jesus Christ? That's what true, mature believers long for. There's a second feature of the Lord's return, and that's the watching of it. It's pretty easy from here forward. 23 through 24. 
And they will say to you, look there or look here. Do not go out and follow them or follow them. For as lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the son of man be in his day. In other words, the kingdom will be observable. I'm talking to the Pharisees about an invisible kingdom that must come first. But when I return, you will observe it. Pretty clear, right? Well, he's saying the future kingdom will be seen. It's going to be visible. Verse 23 says, and they will say to you, look there or look here. And notice he uses the same, right? From the previous uh, wording of, to, the, to the Pharisees, right? You can't observe it then. You will observe it here. They're going to say to you, look there or look here. He says, false teachers, basically, he says, do not go out and follow them or follow them. That's, that's warning to not follow false teachers. Do you know that there's people who are going to come and who have come that will point to signs, secret events, and saying only a select few of people can know, but, you know, he's come back or he's coming back or here's how you can know when he's coming back, right? You heard of these people? And you know what he says? Don't follow them. He says in Luke 21, see that you are not, what? Led astray. For many will come in my name saying, I'm he. And that the time is at hand. Do not go after them. No, he says this in verse 24. Read it. Look. He says, for as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. He's saying something pretty, pretty clear here. This is going to be universally observed. You're going to see it. It's going to be visible. Everyone on the planet will see it. There's not only going to be a great desire for his coming, but when it happens, everyone will see it. There will be no mistaking. It's going to be like lightning that flashes in the sky. It's going to be sudden. It's going to be visible. It's going to be abrupt. It's going to be obvious, right? Things are going to happen. Verse Matthew 24 tells us believers will be gathered. It says this, the sun will be darkened. The moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven. The powers of heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the son of man. Then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. They will see the son of man coming on the clouds of heavens with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. And Revelation 1, it tells us every single person will see him. Behold, he is coming with the clouds and what? 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 Every eye will see him. Every eye. Those who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Notice here that this is polemical, meaning the way that Jesus is speaking about his return, which is why I'm using the tone I'm using. My tone's got to match the tone of the text. The way he's speaking about this is, is of warning. That's how he chooses to speak of, of this. He's using a, a warning tone throughout this whole section. And some people say, you know, they say that Jesus is, you know, the way they, they use this over sentimental, unbiblical view of, of Jesus. 
And I tell you, he's, he's loving. Is Jesus loving? Absolutely. But I think his definition of love is very different from what our definition of love is. You know what his definition of love was? Tell the truth. Because the only the truth can save you. It's not loving to not tell the truth. It's actually damning for everyone who, who's around you. And so they obviously haven't spent three years walking through the book of Luke, right? To see Jesus' true demeanor. Everyone is going to see it when he returns. Everyone will know he is true and that everything the word says about him is true. There's a third feature of his coming that Jesus makes clear and that's when it will take place. Number three, he says, it says this in verse 25, but first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. This is pretty clear. This is the timing. The timing is in focus here. That's, that's what's in view. That is, Jesus must suffer many things, be rejected by this generation first. You know what that means? It's referring to the crucifixion, okay? It's referring to the crucifixion. Entrance into his spiritual kingdom must happen first, as we've just seen with the Pharisees, but it's gonna be rejected. He's gonna suffer at the hands of Israel. Listen, look at what it says here. First, he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. He's going to suffer at the hands of Israel. And listen, he's going to suffer at the hand of God. Without suffering as the substitutionary sacrifice for the forgiveness of sin, there will be no internal spiritual kingdom and there will be no external permanent future kingdom for the church. So he will be killed and rejected by the Jews He will be under the wrath of his father as the punishment for sin. And he will be rejected and killed by the Jews. Speaking of this generation, Luke 9 tells us, Jesus answered, oh, faithless and twisted generation. How long am I to be with you? Luke 11, when the crowds were increasing, they began to say, this generation is an evil generation. In Luke 12, it says, I came to cast fire on the earth. And were it that it would already, uh, and would that it would it were already kindled? I have a baptism to be baptized by, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished? Speaking of his crucifixion, do you think that I've come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather what? Division. Luke eighteen, and taking the twelve, he said to them, "See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished." He will be delivered over to the Gentiles, mocked, shamefully treated, spit upon, and after flogging him, they're gonna kill him, and on the third day, he's gonna rise. That's what he's gotta suffer before this return comes. Acts 2, Paul speaks of it, uh, um, Peter speaks of it in Acts 2. He says this, Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, and this Jesus, you Jews, crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. That's what's gonna happen. Paul speaks about it in Acts 17, he reasoned with them from the scriptures explaining this, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. That's what he's talking about here, Luke 17. He says, this is gonna happen. And you know when it's gonna happen? Listen now, stay with me. It's in the last days. You know the last days according to the scripture anytime after his birth, his life, his death, his resurrection. That means you live in the last days. There's no more to happen except for Christ to return. 
That's the ultimate plan now. Beyond this, beyond the fact that this happens in the last days after his crucifixion, there's no timing other than this. Mark 13 tells us concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the son, of, nor the son but only the father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It's like a man going on a journey when he leaves home, puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. He's saying this, it's going to come suddenly. It's going to come sometime in the last days. And therefore, your job is to stay awake. So staying awake here refers to your salvation and then continuing on in the faith as proof of your salvation, right? So he gives the disciples clarity. His permanent kingdom, his external kingdom, his physical kingdom, his ultimate kingdom is going to come at some point in the last days after his crucifixion. We stand in the time period of his expected coming. So the question is, are you ready for it? Are you ready for it? We need to make sure we're ready because as number four tells us, we see here, Jesus says, there's gonna be no warning. We move into the lack of warning, the time to get ready. Verse 26 through 30. He says, just as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking and buying and selling and planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So it will be in the day when the Son of Man is, is revealed. It's pretty clear. There must be a readiness, a preparation, a salvation because he will return and he will return suddenly. And again, this has a polemical warning tone. How do we know that? Well, he uses the pictures of Noah and judgment and Lot and judgment. His picture here is vindication and judgment. It's not a, uh, hey, we're all gonna, you know, you know, it's gonna just be uh, just rainbows and butterflies. There's a vindication here. The king's coming. He's gonna conquer the enemies. And those who are in his kingdom are gonna rest in peace for all of eternity. Verse 26, let's just pick this apart for just a minute. He says, just as was in the days. You know what that means? In other words, it's going to be like. Like what? Like the days of Noah, okay? When what? When the Son of Man comes, the Messiah, he returns, the day of the Lord. And he's speaking to specifics of the event now. He says people were preoccupied with priorities that they were set on. The unbelieving and unrepenting and unexpecting world. Genesis 6 through 9 describes this story of Noah. That's where you can find it. Noah obeyed God, trusted God by faith, made himself ready. God fulfilled his covenant and saved him. So it will be for everyone who's trusted in Christ. But for everyone who has not, the surrounding world, they will be eating, drinking, marrying, given over in marriage until the day that he comes. Just like it says here, until the day that the flood came. Verse 27. And then it came and destroyed them all. Now listen, despite this being typically portrayed as a kid-friendly story, the story of Noah, the story of Noah is an ugly picture. It's judgment on sin. The entire world was killed. And then God gives a promise in his rainbow and, and says, next time I'm not gonna destroy the earth, I'm gonna save it. They're sending my son, but then he will destroy it for all those who refuse to believe. 
It will be when he returns the same as it was then. He's gonna fulfill his covenant to those who have trusted in his word by faith like Noah did. And he's going to destroy the sinful, unbelieving world in judgment. It's exactly what he's saying here. And there will be no warning. Peter says he's delayed now to give ample opportunity for people to repent and believe now. So this is your opportunity. Verse 28 says this, likewise, just as in days of Lot, he chooses to use Lot here. Genesis chapter 19 is where you can find it. People will be eating and drinking and buying and selling and planting and building. You know, when Lot went out from Sodom, which Sodom, by the way, is named for its perversion, he went out and then fire and sulfur rained with suddenness, judgment, and the unprepared were destroyed. And just in case, listen now, stay with me. We're almost done. Got a couple more. Just in case they missed the point, verse 30, look at it right now, look at it. So it will be on the day of this, when the Son of Man is revealed. He's saying, I mean, just in case you missed this, I'm using these illustrations to describe what it will be like when I return, right? When he comes during that era of his coming, regardless of the ordering of events, he's gonna save the elect and there will be judgment on those who did not listen to his word. He uses revealed here. Again, making clear he's talking about his future coming. This will be eternal. This will be external. This will be physical. And this will bring, there will be judgment. And people need to be ready. Which leads us to the way that the true believers will respond. Number five, the way to respond to the future kingdom. We've got about five minutes, so let's finish this thing. 31. On that day, let the one who was on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who was in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife? Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. It's pretty straightforward here. It's not hard to understand. Now, this is exposing and revealing more than it is instructional. He's not saying, hey, look, wait until that day, and then you know what's gonna save you if you don't go back into your house. He's not saying, you know what, wait until that day, you know what's gonna save you. It's if you don't turn back. That's an exposing of what's already taken place in the person's heart. This is exposing. He's going to expose who true believers are. You understand? Uh, The true believers won't look back. They'll let good and kindred go, go, this mortal life also. The one on the housetop is not going to go back to get your goods. (laughs) The one in the field is not going to go back. If you believe in Christ and he comes back and you understand that you need him for your salvation, you ain't going back. So the Lord will expose the hearts of man and whether he's, they've given up this world as the evidence of true saving faith or whether they haven't. True discipleship, true saving faith has the priority and the preference of Christ. And there's belief in Christ. There's obedience to Christ. We die to ourselves. We repent from our sin. We give up this world and we surrender to the master. When the master comes, you say, yes, master, and you're coming, right? So... First John 2 says this, do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. You know how you can know whether or not you're in Christ, whether or not you love the world or not. And so at this point, you're gonna, it's gonna be exposed to who loves the world. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life is not from the Father, but from the world. The world is passing away along with its desires. Whoever does the will of God abides forever. It's gonna be exposed if you do the will of God that you're in Christ. Verse 32 says this, to make this clear, he says, remember Lot's wife. You know what happened with Lot's wife? Let me tell you this, you can find in Genesis 19. 
they gave the same warning that you find in this passage. He told Lot's wife, the angels told Lot's wife, don't look back. If you look back, you're going to die. The same warning, Genesis 19, 17. They brought them out, escape for your life, they said. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape from the hills lest you be swept away. Lot's wife made it as close to deliverance as possible without actually experiencing it. She was outside the city and she looked back. And this is the picture of one who is a false disciple, right? At that time, it might seem like she's going to escape judgment. You're going to escape judgment. And yet, you'll make it as close to salvation as you can, having all the information, and yet not actually experiencing it because there's no true regeneration. The heart's revealed. Genesis 19 says the Lord reigned, Sodom and, uh, reigned on Sodom and Gomorrah, sulfur and fire. The Lord reigned this out of heaven and he overthrew the cities and the valley and all the inhabitants and the cities and what grew on the ground. Verse 26, but Lot's wife behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. This is like uh, the parable of the weeds and, and the soil. And one that takes root sprouting for a little while and then yet the cares and the riches of the world choke out the life. So verse 33 then it says, just to clarify all this, those who, whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will keep it. It's pretty clear. Luke, uh, Jesus said this in Luke 9 as well. He said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross. Whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and yet forfeits his soul? Luke 14, he says this, any one of you who does not renounce all that you have, he has, cannot be my disciple. So true disciples will give up their lives in this world to have life in the next. So, number six, Christ's sixth point of clarity. He says in verses 34 through 37, we're almost done, just give me a few minutes here. I tell you, in that night, there will be two in one bed. One will be taken, the other left. There will be two women grinding together. One will be taken, the other left. And they said to him, where, Lord? He said to them, where the corpse is. There the vultures were gathered. Now, Again, this is clear. It doesn't take much to understand. He's, what he's saying here is there's going to be division. True believers, non-believers, or false disciples. This will be a permanent, eternal division. Jesus made clear that even when he came on earth, he came to bring division. He made to make clear. All, all these, it was so cloudy. All the Jewish people thought that they were right with God. He came to bring distinction, make it clear. This is what true salvation is. This is how you have it. And this is who doesn't have it and how you reject it. He came to do this. Matthew 10 says, clear, do you think I've come to bring peace? I've come to bring, not peace, but a sword, right? And in Luke 12, he says this, do you think I've come to give peace? He says, no, but rather division. This came, he came the first time in this way and he will come the second time in this way. And Jesus says, um, he's gonna force the issue. Verse 34 says this, look, just, we're almost done. I tell you that in that night, there will be two in one bed, one will be taken, the other left. So listen now, on one part of the world, listen, just a couple minutes. There, on one part of the world, it will be nighttime. And there's going to be two people in one bed. This isn't fictitious. This isn't symbolic. This is literal. There's going to be two people in one bed. And one is either going to be an, uh, an animate rejecter of Christ. Or maybe it's one who thinks that they know Christ. And one of them will be a true believer. And one will be taken, one will be left. And then he says in verse 35, there will be two women grinding together, grinding at the mill. 
and one will be taken and one will be left. Same thing. And if you notice here, if you've seen it, there's no verse 36 in most translations. You notice that? Which is, uh, it's just another example um, that we find two men in a field. One turns back and one doesn't. We see in Matthew's account. Now, why does that happen? It happens because in most circulated manuscripts, it did not include this. Yet other very trustworthy manuscripts did include this in Luke's writing. Yet either way, can I tell you this? When they circulate the manuscripts, there's credentials that they had in putting together the canon which is, it was either written by an apostle or backed by an apostle. Uh, It was circulated by the early church. There was uh, copies upon copies upon copies. It was clear that this was something that the the, the early church authenticated, et cetera, right? When they find, which are very, 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 very small percentage, any deviation like this where there was another example here, you know, all of those deviations, none of them change the meaning of the text. There was another example here that's also found in Matthew's account that uh, maybe was also inserted here, um, but it doesn't change the meaning. It just points to another example where one man is left and one man is taken. And so all of these parallels here is just division, judgment, and like the wheat and the tares being separated in Matthew 13 or like the goats and the sheep being separated in Matthew 25. In verse 37, it says this, we're done after this. Yet it says this, They said to him, where, Lord? He said to them, where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. You know what that means? They don't understand that this judgment won't just be in Israel, that this is gonna be universal, global. And Jesus responds with what is probably a Jewish proverb, and and it's pretty simple. I mean, he just means wherever the dead bodies are, wherever the unregenerate lay, that's where Christ's judgment has occurred, right? In other words, it's gonna be everywhere. It's gonna be everywhere. It's gonna be over across the whole earth. That's where this is going to take place. And uh, Jude 14 says this, Behold, the Lord comes with 10,000 of his holy ones to execute judgment on all, to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds and ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things and ungodly sinners have spoken against him. So let me just point to this, ready? Go back to the six of them and, and let me show you. Here's what Christ is making clear to true disciples about his coming kingdom after they've experienced his Per, uh, uh, immediate um, spiritual kingdom through salvation. Uh, you're going to desire it. You should wait for it. It's coming. It's going to be observable. You're going to see it. None will mistake it. It's going to be after his crucifixion sometime in the last days. It's coming without warning, so be ready. Uh, the way to respond is, is with him as a Lord and as evidence of your true salvation that, and the wrath of, of the future kingdom, there will be separation, judgment. Now, well, how do we respond to this? Let me just, let me give you Peter's words and John's words, and they'll tell us how to respond, and we'll be done. Peter says this, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, meaning this is gonna happen, what sort of people ought you to be? That's the question. What kind of people should you be if this is what's coming? Those who live lives of holiness and godliness, waiting, as Jesus says, hastening, desiring the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. The righteous will be taken to him. The unrighteous will be dissolved. 
What kind of people should you be? You should be people who know that you're born again and who are living lives. The purpose of your life then is holiness and maturity and sanctification and purity. Let me show you what John, how John says it. And now, little children, abide in him. Stay with him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him at his coming. I wonder how many in here would shrink if he came right now. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. You know how you know that you're in Christ? Is if your life is one of practicing righteousness. So let us be ones who are living in holiness, experienced salvation, practicing righteousness so that we don't shrink at his coming. This is how it's gonna work, he told us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your clarity. It's a lot to do in one, one day, in one sitting. So I just pray by your grace that you would help us to remember all of these truths, that we would expect your second coming and live accordingly until the day that you come. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this resource from the Field Church in Mandeville, Louisiana. We pray that it helps you joyfully make Jesus Christ your treasure.